Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you happening across our broadcast for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And if you would like to get in on the ground floor of providing those questions, we would sure love to hear from you. Any question you have about the Bible, any question you might have about what the Bible has to say about living in interesting times like the ones we're in right now, we would more than welcome that. Uh, maybe you'd like to dig deeper into the scripture. Maybe a uh, controversial subject has uh, created more heat than light, even among your own circle of Christian friends. Hey, bring it on. The only uh, standard for the questions that we answer on this broadcast, pretty simple. Just make sure it's a sincere question. And if you're looking for an answer straight from the scripture, we'll be more than happy to uh, entertain any question on your heart or on your mind today. A number of different ways you can uh, get those questions to us, Sean. How can people make that connection? Well, you can join us on our website, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab at the purple bar at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to our streaming page, which is titled ccftucson.online.church. And there at the right-hand side of the screen, you can leave your questions. And at the bottom of the screen, we'll have our email address spelled out for you for future use. Note as well, social media is at the moment hosting us. YouTube is A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe there, you'll be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone. However, if they, for whatever reason, don't like what we have to say and are taken down from those platforms, you can still join us on our website where we have a countdown clock to the next broadcast, as well as resources you can engage with us on sending your questions beyond email. Note as well, if you're listening on Reach Radio, we uh, appreciate your participation in the broadcast, and note that is how you can get a hold of us. Feel free to keep the email address handy for sending us your Bible questions and as well for future reference on the broadcast. Note as well, the standards for the questions we'll be receiving are sincere Bible questions. If the sincerity of your question is potent enough that you actually want to hear the answer, we will provide it. If you have a question, make sure it's about the Bible, not just in the question, but also in the answer. If you want hypotheticals or going beyond Scripture, we, uh, we get a little uncomfortable on that. We don't want to share our opinions. We just right. want to clarify what is written. And of course, if it is asked in the form of a question, we will answer in the form of an answer. So with all that said, and encouraging you all to pray for us that the Lord speaks during this broadcast, we will do the same before getting into some, uh, not necessarily prophecy updates, but prophecy clarification and waiting in for your questions. But again, let's make sure that we're prayed up before we do this. Yeah, let's absolutely. 
absolutely do that. Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to bring this broadcast before you. And I thank you, Lord, that we can trust in you and lean on you and uh, look to you to be the one that guides and directs even the conversation that we have. We pray that the questions would be precisely the questions you want to have answered. We pray that the answers would come straight from your scripture and be empowered by the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, your word, empowered by your spirit, can change lives. It can cause people who are separated from you to be born again, to have a brand new relationship with you as they put their faith and trust in what your son Jesus did when he died for them on the cross and rose from the dead so they could have eternal life. I pray, Father, that many would make that decision today. I pray for those who already have made that decision, you'd edify them, exhort them, and comfort them. And thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to draw close to you in this fellowship based around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, as you've probably been made aware of any for any length of time, rather, listening to this broadcast, one of the prophetic resources we recommend to all those interested in the topic is Joel Rosenberg and his Word Traffic blog. Uh, he recently responded to a lot of the hubbaloo concerning the uh, frequency and, I guess, uh, popularization of the topic of the red heifer and a sacrifice that would be needed in the rededication of the temple as well as the event of Rosh Hashanah, which is coming to a close on the Jewish calendar around today. And, of course, noting that point as well, is this uh, high time for some prophetically significant events. Some would even say the rapture of the Church. What, uh, first of all, are his comments on them, and uh, what would be the Bible's agreements or disagreements therein? Well, uh, Joel at his All Israel News uh, website, and if you don't follow it, we would highly recommend that you do it. Joel does a tremendous job of uh, keeping you up to date about uh, issues that are going on in Israel. But uh, again, a very interesting uh, story that they read with this headline, what does the Bible say about the importance of the red heifer, the third temple, and the coming Messiah? So as you can probably imagine, uh, this is uh, somewhat of a lengthy article, but uh, definitely uh, worth your time uh, to read it. Go on All Israel News and you can uh, read it at your leisure. But uh, last week, uh, All Israel News, along with two other outlets, uh, covered a story that was intriguing to to, uh, religious Jews, Messianic Jews, anti-evangelical Christians who believe that the third temple must be built in Jerusalem before the coming or the second coming of the Messiah. Uh, Nicole uh, Janezian, uh, the news editor and senior correspondent of All Israel News, wrote, five rabbi-approved red heifers arrived from Texas on Thursday to a ceremonious welcome at Ben-Gurion Airport and touched off a whirlwind of speculation as to the prophetic significance of their presence in Israel and whether we are barreling towards a third temple period or the last days. Uh, she noted that the cows have been inspected by rabbis and were found to be red and unblemished which means they are ritually pure for sacrifice as stipulated under the law of Moses. In order for someone following Mosaic law to become ritually pure, the ashes of a red heifer are required according to the book of Numbers, and that's found uh, in some detail in Numbers chapter 19. Well, uh, the interesting thing about the arrival of these red heifers, we've heard reports about uh, red heifers in Israel uh, over the last oh, couple of decades or so. But inevitably, uh, the red heifers that have been uh, uh, imported there uh, have uh, been shown to have some kind of blemish or some kind of defect to them. Apparently, these five red heifers have uh, passed rabbinic uh, scrutiny. Uh, and uh, this is significant in that the sacrifice of a red heifer and the ashes mixed together with water 
to kind of give you the Cliff Notes version of Numbers 19, uh, is uh, absolutely essential for not only uh, the purification of the implements that are going to be used in temple worship in a rebuilt temple, but also in the uh, dedication of the uh, priests that would serve in this temple. In other words, without a red heifer sacrifice, uh, you could not have a third temple in the first place. Now, Sean, as you and I have gone on tours of Israel a couple different times, one of the things uh, that they always take you through is uh, the uh, Temple Mount uh, Institute's uh, museum, where they show the different uh, implements and uh, uh, Levitical garments uh, that they have already manufactured in anticipation of the coming of a third temple. Now, there's some major obstacles to the building of a third temple. One of the biggies was the presence of uh, a red heifer. Apparently, these five red heifers have now passed uh, uh, rabbinic uh, examination, so that's off the block. But boy, aren't there some others standing in the way of a rebuilt temple? Well, among other things, they need the Temple Mount under Jewish control to begin construction. They also need some uh, people willing to begin offering sacrifices. The majority of the Orthodox Jewish community do not believe that a temple should be rebuilt until Messiah comes, and uh, we can talk about the irony in that in a moment. There's also a lot of obstacles concerning the, I guess, efficacy of whether or not a temple should be reinstituted or not, because not only do you have all the political options, position, but the religious disunity among Jews in that the Messianic Jewish community believes that the purpose of sacrifices has been fulfilled in the Messiah. Since Jesus came, as Hebrews 10 notes, his sacrifice is sufficient for all sins. The Orthodox community wouldn't be in on it, and so that only leaves the nominal Jews who wouldn't be attending temple anyway, let alone synagogue. Yeah, well, but there are some uh, interesting uh trends that I think that we need to take into account in all of this, uh, particularly some predictions we find in the Bible. There will be a rebuilt temple on its historic site uh, in the future. Uh, apparently, there is going to be a rebuilt temple where the Antichrist himself is going to be able to go in, uh, sit in the rebuilt Holy of Holies, and declare himself God to be worshipped, an idol uh an image of him will be made, and people will uh, bow down and offer uh, their allegiance to uh, this image of the beast, we're told in Revelation 13, 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, indicates this is uh, the event Jesus spoke of that he called the abomination that causes desolation. And so in order for the predictions regarding the final seven-year period of time called the tribulation to be fulfilled, we have to have a rebuilt temple. It will happen. Now, uh, my personal take on it is, and your mileage may vary, is that in passages like Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and following, uh, we are told that in the uh, last days, the people, the prince who is to come, this final prince, this antichrist, is going to come and make a strong covenant with many nations. At the three-and-a-half-year mark of this seven-year covenant, he's going to take away offering and sacrifice. So that tells us that the Antichrist is going to be the one who's going to orchestrate the rebuilding of the temple. Maybe it will be billed as, uh, well, we're going to finally um, uh, put away the sword and uh, all religions are going to come together on this temple mount. We are told in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 17, that there's going to be a last day's world-dominating uh, religious system 
and seemingly is going to have all peoples involved with it all. And it uh, does appear that uh, the center point of this religious system may very well be at that rebuilt temple. So there is going to be definitely a rebuilt temple in the future. When it will happen, I personally don't believe it will happen until after the rapture of the church and the signing of the seven-year peace agreement that is uh, forecasted, uh, the covenant with death, if you will, that the Jewish people will enter into. Which is why we think it's ironic the Orthodox Jewish community is stating they won't want a temple rebuilt until Messiah officially retakes the throne of David, which the Antichrist will no doubt make himself out to be. Yeah, and uh, understand something, you know, when we talk about the coming of the Messiah as believers, we've got a whole cluster of biblical truths that we're applying and loading into that particular statement. Uh, for the Orthodox, Messiah literally means an anointed one, especially anointed one for a task. That's why what was called the Lubavitcher movement uh, held up their leader as the Messiah. Not that they believed that he was God in human flesh or was born of a virgin or, or anything of the like but that he was going to be leading them towards that uh, sacred goal of restoring the temple. And if you ask the average Jewish person how you'll recognize Messiah when he comes again, a couple things they'll say. First of all, they're going to say, well, we think he's just going to be a man like Moses was a man. And secondly, he will lead us in the rebuilding of our temple. So uh, I think the Antichrist will definitely jump uh, on that with both feet and exploit uh, both of those uh, very uh, well-wired but erroneous assumptions as far as the Messiah himself goes. Uh, very interesting, though, about the red heifer. Uh, we're told in uh, some of the other details that came, and we talked a little bit about this uh, yesterday, that uh, according to uh, rabbis like Maimonides and others, uh, they wrote that in the history of Israel, there were nine red heifers that were sacrificed for the purification of either the tabernacle or the temple. That is not biblical, it is Jewish tradition. But that the tenth red heifer would be offered by Messiah himself. Now, we do have these red heifers that are there in Israel. We do, for the first time, uh, have some red heifers that have passed messianic inspection. For instance, uh, to be without defect, uh, I think in one of the attempts to bring red heifers into Israel, uh, some uh, ranchers in Texas had bred some of these red heifers. They seemed to be okay, but as ranchers are inclined to do, they put a tag in the ear of one of the red heifers uh, to market uh, its ownership and so on, and that rendered it unfit for the purpose. These heifers have been very scrupulously and carefully uh, shepherded, herded along, uh, developed in such a way that these things are not true. Okay. Apparently, there's a tract of land that has been purchased uh, beyond the area of the Mount of Olives where these red heifers are going to be kept safe and secure and continue to be nurtured until such time as uh, the rebuilding of the temple takes place. Now, the important detail in all of this is, so then looking at these heifers, 
years is their well-being, their lifespan, giving us a uh, foreshadowing, if you will, of when the temple ought to be rebuilt. And the answer is a solid no. When it comes to Jewish and sincere Jewish attempts to prepare for the rebuilding of the temple, these are simply just basically setting things up so that should that event take place, they are ready. It isn't the cause of the event, nor is it prophetically significant in any way. We need to clarify that. Yeah, and so uh, on uh, the one detail we wanted to share with you, uh, the uh, uh, Temple Mount Institute uh, leadership uh, maintains that, as we mentioned, the Jewish sage Maimonides wrote that the appearance of a tenth red heifer after the nine used to consecrate the priests serving in earlier temples is associated with the Messianic era. The Temple Mount Institute would say this indicates we are entering into the Messianic era. Does that mean that the appearance of the red heifer in these waning end times is an indication or a forerunner of the appearance of Messiah himself who will officiate at its preparation, they ask. If there had been no red heifer for the past 2,000 years, perhaps because the time was not right. Israel was far from being ready. But now, what could it mean for the times we live in to have the means for purification so close at hand? With the words of Maimonides in mind, we can't help but wonder and pray if now the red heifers is ours, the era that will need them. So one thing you have to understand about the Temple Mount Institute, and like we say, we've gone through their tour a couple different times, and wonderful, hospitable people, uh, they're not really held as being very influential yeah. in Jewish society. Uh, they're kind of looked at as uh, sort of a uh, uh, kind of a splinter group. Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, that there would have to be, uh, you know, the, the arguments go that if you go to the Temple Mount, and you actually take a look at where the temple was uh, actually situated. The Muslims may have made a huge mistake in placing the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock on the temple, that you could fit the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount and uh, have room for those Muslim shrines. And that may very well be what uh, Revelation chapter 11 is indicating, that there is a uh, line drawn on the Temple Mount uh, that would separate the temple area from the area given over to the Gentiles. So maybe we'll see that kind of compromise as a part of the Antichrist uh, agreement. The only problem with things as they stand today is, is this. Uh, even if, say, for instance, there was room on that Temple Mount uh, to build a temple uh, and not uh, interfere with the Muslim shrines, uh, you and I have had uh, up-close and personal experience with what's called the Waqfa, that is the Jordanian-orchestrated uh, Muslim uh, organization that oversees the Temple Mount. Are, are you uh, of the opinion that they would be friendly, welcoming folks that we open to some kind of compromise of this kind? I don't think they'd be friendly, opening, or welcoming towards anyone of any kind if they weren't, well, even if they were claiming to be Muslims. Yeah, what were some of our experiences with the Waqfa when we were there? Well, for example, they, and this is international standards and uh, procedures, nothing specifically that you couldn't get from going there. The policy is that you had to have a certain dress code that you couldn't be exposing your ankles or wear anything they would deem inappropriate. And note that is a much broader list than we in our Netflix-saturated United States and Western culture would deem as inappropriate. They'll hurl any number of slurs at men or women who are dressing as they would deem provocatively. You aren't allowed to bow your head or bring any religious scripture other than the Quran onto the Temple Mount. And of course, if you were to refer to the Temple Mount as the Temple 
Temple Mount, they will cuss you out and say, do not refer to it as the Temple Mount, say it is Al-Aqsa, which means the center in Arabic. Yeah, so uh, we've we've, uh, seen this sort of thing in action. So interesting development. I think that's pretty much the conclusion uh, that uh, Joel Rosenberg came to at the end of his article. Uh, This is uh, what he said. Uh, about this, uh, the uh, arrival. Uh, the point here is that with the arrival of red heifers in Israel, do not accelerate God's sovereign timing for the rapture. If their presence here convinces Israeli Jews to start building the temple in our lifetime, that could be very significant. We'll have to see how uh, Jewish uh, culture responds to the presence of red heifers in their midst. And that's also a point worth noting. If the temple starts to be rebuilt before the time of the rapture, does that mean that the Antichrist is rising to power and that the ones sponsoring these events are in fact the Antichrist? The answer is no. When we're talking about the mark of the Antichrist, it's not going to just be the rebuilding of the temple. It will be making a covenant with many nations and confirmed for seven years. Yeah, that's peace spe- treaty. That's specific. So make yeah. sure that your eyes aren't on the temple mount per se as to the timing of the end times. Yeah, Joel goes on to say the building of the third temple is part of end times Bible prophecy. It won't provide atonement for sins, but it will be built in the last days of history before the second coming of Christ. Will it be built in our lifetime? Joel says, I don't know, but wouldn't that be fascinating? Yeah. And I think that's probably the best place to leave that. Another um, uh, potentially prophetically significant uh, series of events going on here. Uh, As we've mentioned to you before, one of the things that we've uh, kept you uh, up to date on uh, in the history of this program has uh, been uh, the birth pains that Jesus told us to look for, uh, that uh, there would be certain events that would happen that would increase in frequency and intensity as the time of Jesus' return for his people at the rapture draws near. Well, one of those or two of those events are wars and rumors of wars, and boy, in the category under wars and uh, rumors of wars, uh, we've really got some uh, doozies uh, going on at this particular point. Uh, If um, you uh, are keeping up on world events, there is an open war going on between uh, Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Putin, the prime minister of Russia, thought uh, that he could shock and awe Ukraine into submission and uh, that he could make short work of uh, annexing the Ukraine. He had good reason to suggest that because uh, in the past he has been able to come in and access, uh, uh, or annex, I should say, uh, some uh, very significant tracts of territory, including the Crimea, the area uh, around the Black Sea, and so on. Well, as you know, uh, the uh, battle in the Ukraine has turned into a slog. It's turned into a standoff. There have been some gains by the Russians, but then the Ukrainians have come back. Uh, The United States and the West seem to be backing the Ukraine militarily, financially, uh, and uh, things have gotten uh, so uh, over the top and out of hand that uh, Putin uh, issued a uh, call-up order uh, for reservists. That meant that anyone between the age of 18 to 65 years of age in Russia could be called up to serve as uh, backup soldiers in a uh, upgraded uh, Ukrainian war, if you will. Uh, well, uh, the, uh, the call-up of, uh, they're talking about about 300,000 individuals was met in Russia by uh, a lot of men from call-up age trying to uh, get out of Russia as quickly as they could. Uh, Russia immediately closed the airports and the borders to such things. And then 
uh, a very uh, interesting uh, note uh, was sent out uh, by uh, our, uh, our State Department uh, earlier today. It said, on September 21st, this is from our State Department, the Russian government began a mobilization of its citizens to the armed forces in support of the invasion of Ukraine. Russia may refuse to acknowledge dual nationals' U.S. citizenship, deny their access to U.S. counselor assistance, prevent their departure from Russia, and conscript dual nationals for military service. Commercial flight options are extremely limited at present and often unavailable on short notice. Overland routes by car and bus are still open. If you wish to depart Russia, you should make independent arrangements as soon as possible. The U.S. Embassy has severe limitations on its ability to assist U.S. citizens, and conditions, including transportation options, may suddenly become more limited. Again, the article went on to say U.S. citizens should not travel to Russia and those residing or traveling in Russia should depart Russia immediately while limited commercial travel options uh, remain. The Department of State provides uh, information on commercial travel uh, on its website. We remind U.S. citizens that the right to peacefully assemble and freedom of expression are not guaranteed in Russia. Avoid all political and social protests. Do not photograph security personnel at these events. Russian authorities have arrested U.S. citizens who participated in demonstrations. Uh, And so they advocate that anyone who is a U.S. citizen, especially dual citizens, say having Russian and U.S. citizenship, uh, leave immediately. Now, why this upping of the ante? Well, it's not just because of the draw-up of uh, the, uh, the uh, conscripts that we are talking about here. Uh, another very interesting event uh, took place in uh, the, uh, uh, the area, roughly uh, around uh, Sweden and Norway. Uh, if you're familiar uh, with uh, one of the uh, most important bones of contention in all of this conflict, it's the Nord Sea, N-O-R-D-S-E-A, because it goes through the North Sea, uh, uh, oil and gas pipeline, the natural gas pipeline that Russia uses to get natural gas to its waiting customers in Europe. Well, uh, back on February 7th, uh, our president, uh, Joe Biden, said, and I quote, if Russia invades the Ukraine, there will no longer be a Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We will bring an end to it. Reporter says, but how will you do that exactly since the project is in Germany's control? Biden says, I promise you, we will be able to do that. Well, lo and behold, what happened uh, yesterday, uh, there was a uh, massive uh, hole that was blown in the Nord Sea 2 pipeline. Now, there's all kinds of speculation as to why this particular pipeline sprung a leak, if you will, grinding the export of natural gas to Eastern to uh, Europe to almost a halt. Uh, one of them is that uh, the United States did go in, as uh, President uh, Biden intimated, and uh, put an end to these Russian exports as sort of a uh, economic front against uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Others have said that, uh, no, uh, it's uh, probably the Russians that have done this uh, because uh, they want to, uh, again, raise the price of natural gas with their existing pipeline. Others have said, no, the United States has done this because if Russian natural gas is cut off to Europe, Europe is heading into winter. In winter, you need natural gas to provide heating and energy for homes. Uh, The United States would directly benefit by being the only one who could provide Europe 
with natural gas. Well, the, the bottom line is this. If uh, there was a United States involvement that has been identified here uh, with this particular pipeline, uh, you better believe Russia is going to respond to all of this. And it's very possible that Russia is already in the business, if you will, of responding. A very interesting article ran in the Jerusalem Post right before airtime with this headline, U.S. shoots down Iranian drone in northern Iraq, says the report. The U.S. Central Command condemned the Iranian Republic Guard Corps' attacks, which killed one U.S. citizen, according to an unconfirmed report. So remember something, Russia and Iran are hand in hand in terms of their alliance. We've seen prophetically in Ezekiel 38 that uh, they will be part of a last day's alliance that will invade Israel someday. Uh, Russia has uh, looked to Iran, believe it or not, for Iran to provide them up-to-date drone technology. Apparently the Iranians have more sophisticated uh, drone attack technology they've developed than the Russians do. It is very interesting that uh, in the uh, tit-for-tat, if you will, of what's going on here, the Nord Sea pipeline uh, mysteriously springing a leak, according to some, an explosion caused this leak. Very interesting that there was a response along these lines. Uh, the, the, the bottom line is, I think we are looking at we are, the fact that we are going into another season of birth pains. Uh, and uh, as Jesus spoke of these events being like birth pains, the thing you got to remember is this. The birth pains that he mentioned, like the process of giving birth, will increase in frequency and intensity. They will build up almost to a fever pitch, and then suddenly they're going to go away. Well, we've seen that happen in events in Israel. Now we're seeing this happen in, in a more global sense. But uh, certainly these are all events that do surround Israel. So there were some who were asking about the Nord Sea pipeline explosion and what that has to do with prophecy. I think I would categorize it uh, as what Jesus warned about with wars and rumors of wars. Uh, we need to be praying for our leaders. We need to be praying for peace in the world and uh, that this thing doesn't uh, end up accelerating into a conflict that could really end up becoming quite nasty. I think that probably what you're going to see is a lot of cyber warfare that is going to go on, a lot of back and forth between Russia and the United States, because this does seem to be uh, the way that uh, a lot of modern warfare is conducted in uh, these days. So also be praying for those who were in harm's way as far as Hurricane Ian is concerned. Some people have asked, is that prophetic? No, hurricanes happen all the time. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be praying for people, uh, especially in the uh, Fort Lauderdale area, seem to be uh, right in the uh, teeth of uh, not only the hurricane itself, but the uh, flood surge that always accompanies it. I saw one article uh, before airtime where a uh, beach camera that was six feet high was underwater at this particular time. So uh, definitely a uh, nasty little storm. Uh, We uh, want to uh, encourage those of you who listen to us on Life FM in Miami that we're lifting you up in prayer during this time. Yeah, and speaking of which, uh, Yari has a question regarding someone praying Hurricane Ian back into the sea from whence it came. Uh, Is this biblical? No, that's the Hobbit, Yari, not the Bible. Uh, When people are talking (laughs) about—maybe some of you get the reference. Uh, When people are talking about rebuking the storms and so forth, they might be making the loose allusion to, well, gee, 
Jesus did it, so why can't I? And hopefully once the words have left your mouth, you realize how blasphemous that is. There was a reason why when Jesus literally told a storm, be muzzled, and it listened, that something happened. And it wasn't because, oh, uh, just look at the power of God, these things you can do too. No, Jesus was actually making a divine claim when he did that. Right. In the Psalms, specifically Psalm 107, there's a series of basically historical references to the times in Israel's history where they got off track, they realized how much they needed God, and then it follows this right. uh, stanza, basically. Uh, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from all their distresses. This is Psalm 107 in verse, um, excuse me, uh, verse 28. Then it goes on in verse 29 to say, he, notice not we, he calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet and note even this detail. So he guides them to their desired haven and then goes on to praise the Lord for the things that he's done in history. Now, what's interesting about that is it not only describes God silencing the storms with a word, but reducing the waves caused by the storm to complete stillness. Which is a real feat. Yeah, Yeah, I can curse the storm or rage against the machine, if you will, and it's going to keep on ticking. But if, on the other hand, someone who created those things, who set those laws in order, were then to give it a command, and these non-sentient systems are going to obey it, you're dealing with something not natural. One might even say supernatural. And it even goes on to note this is in the context of those who are in a ship because they celebrate calling out to the Lord, save us, nudge, nudge, and then they are brought to the place where they can be safe in the storm. Now, obviously, this was tit-for-tat fulfilled in the life of Jesus. But why is that significant? Not so that Jesus would show off, but so that he would explain to the disciples, who knew the Psalms, among other things, what Very well. he yeah. was doing, yeah. who he was, because only God calms the storms with a word. See Psalm 107 and verse uh, 30 and 29. So when people uh, get into this habit of saying, oh, well, you know, we see it done in the Bible, so I guess God can do those things through us. No, ask why those things were done. Not just what was done, why was it done? And if you claim for yourself the ability to do things that God did in order to prove who he was, then I'm essentially making the same kind of claim and saying, well, Jesus died and rose from the dead by his own power and authority, so why can't I? God created the heavens and the earth, so why can't I? There are certain things that only God can do, and we need to be very careful not to come to Scripture. I won't say ignorantly, but I will say rashly and not understand what it is we're actually saying. I understand not a lot of people are reading this in depth to the Bible. Hopefully your time in this broadcast will change that. But we need to be careful the kind of witness we leave because non-Christian Jews are going to understand the significance. Look at those Christians co-opting their scriptures and say, what is the matter with you? And as this uh, yeah. Samuel, or Second Samuel, rather, verse 7 says, uh, you've given the enemies of God opportunity to blaspheme. So don't, uh, don't do that, Yari. <laughs> yeah. um, here's a question from Mac, who wants to know, why are the Jews so despised by other countries? Well, uh, in a sense, it was uh, foretold, was it not? Yeah, they share the heart of the one whose authority they are ultimately under. We can talk about, of course, in the end times that 
uh, the prophets, for example, Zechariah specifically, that the nation of Israel would be a stone of stumbling, that all nations would be reduced to irrationality, literally drunkenness when they try to move it. And, of course, we see that very much at work today. But when we're asked the question, the heart behind not just anti-Semitism, but specifically anti-Judaism, this universal disdain and desire for the annihilation of the Jewish people. Islam's certainly a leading cause in that in the world today, but it's not... In the territories they occupy, yeah, sure. But not, yeah. of course, as a blanket rule. Yeah. Hatred of the Jews existed before the 7th century. It was existent in people who claimed to be Christians throughout history. It exists in secular nations as well. Them so, Philistines didn't like the Jews very much either. No, so <laughs> when we're and this is, again, all yeah. pre-Islam. So yeah. we need to ask the question, where is this disdain coming from? And we're given the answer in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, where it notes this very interesting picture of a dragon with seven heads and ten horns, seeking to not only persecute the woman who would give birth to a male child, but to devour her child as soon as he was born. A very plain understanding of the book of Genesis, as well as a continuation of reading the next chapter, chapter 12 in particular, but also 13, will clarify, along with the allusions to Daniel, that dragon is Satan, and right. that the nations that he will send after the woman are those under his authority. He spewed the waters from his mouth. Daniel 7 describes the waters as a picture of the non-Jewish nations. So again, a lot of references to keep track of, but the point, I think, is fairly straightforward. We read in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, I believe, that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, I believe, that the en our enemy, this, the god of this age, as he's referred to, has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe and are under his authority accordingly. And when you see your master hating someone for, as we read in Scripture, being used by God more than any other nation. Deuteronomy 7, the yeah. chosen people. Yeah. Chosen for what? To yeah. bring Messiah into this world. The enemy hates them. The enemy wants their destruction. The enemy knows he can't take God, so he will go after those that he loves. And we're going to see this continue until the time of the end and our Lord's second coming. That is literally the source and foundation of anti-Jewish hatred. And if it is ever even suggested among God's people, a hatred for the Jewish people or disdain for them as quote-unquote Christ killers. First of all, repent. Let's just second of all, all, repent. Yeah, that, yeah. Let's, let's just yeah. leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, let us know if that's clear, Mac. Thank you for the question. Got a question on our website from Lowe, who wants to know, what does nomina sacra mean? Is it like sola scriptura? Well, it's both Latin, but uh, that's about it. Nomina sacra in Latin means what? Uh, it means the sacred name. And in reference to whose? Uh, in reference to... Uh, the Tetragrammaton, that is the four-consonant name of God. It goes a little bit uh, deeper uh, than all of that, uh, you know, as far as uh, its implications go. Uh, you know, it, it, the uh, nomina sacra uh, is uh, a, a idea that in many old Christian manuscripts, uh, the names God, Christ, and Jesus are abbreviated with the first and last letter of each name. Uh, you know, if you've ever seen the uh, the term uh, Yahweh, uh, well, that's an approximation uh, on our part of how that four-consonant 
uh, sacred name of God, yod heth vau heth was to be pronounced. Why is it an approximation? Because the Jews were so concerned about the commandment, you shall not take the name of, of the Lord your God in vain, that when they put together what was called the Masoretic Text, uh, that is uh, one of the oldest manuscripts of the Bible uh, that we have. The Dead Sea Scrolls uh, pushed that all back about another thousand years. But uh, the Masoretic Text included in its Hebrew text something called vowel pointing, uh, basically because Hebrew was not really being spoken of in very many places around 800 A.D. or so when the Masoretic text was put together, they put in little marks so that you would know how to pronounce different words, with one exception. When you came to the sacred name of God, there were no vowel points attached to it. Uh, even to this day, uh, observant Jewish people, if they talk about God or the Lord, they won't say that. They will say Hashem, which literally means the name. Uh, if they write uh, about God, you will oftentimes see they will have the letter G, they'll have a space or a dash, and then D, because they don't want to uh, run afoul of that command to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So, uh, you know, the practice uh, seems to be a sign of honor and respect. And as we said, it carried over into some uh, Christian manuscripts, uh, and uh, they would, uh, again, use uh, that uh, as, as a way of, uh, of setting these things aside. Uh, in uh, later manuscripts, other significant words actually uh, began to be abbreviated as well, like the word son or cross or father, or savior, spirit, or heaven. Uh, and uh, you see in a lot of Latin and Coptic language manuscripts. So what started out as a sign of respect for deity, you know, the fact that we're dealing with God here, uh, eventually developed into a shorthand that uh, in a real way, save labor. Remember, this was before the printing press. If you were going to make a copy of a manuscript, you had to sit down and write the whole thing out. Uh, there's uh, still a lot of study to be done on the reasons and significance of uh, nominus sacra. Literally, it means sacred words. But uh, probably the, uh, the biggest one that we can think of is the sacred name of God, and that uh, goes back to that Masoretic text. So let us know if that helps you out. A follow-up from Mac, uh, just a comment, but I think it leads into a good discussion. A friend told him that he speaks to the Bible as if it's authoritative. He mentioned that it is, but not in a radical kind of way. Uh, interestingly enough, Mac, it should be authoritative to you in a radical kind of way. What needs to be clarified is that term radical. When we think of radical, we think violent or um, compulsive, like the uh, Muslim radicals, those who would express the actions or commands of Muhammad in their lives in a violent way. But the reasoning behind that isn't because radical equals violence. The word radical literally means to the root. That's just plain dictionary. It's so, like a math term, right? Yeah. So yeah. when we're talking about a radical Christian, we're talking about someone who goes to the foundations of Christianity and lives accordingly. Now, according to the Bible and its radical claims, who is our root? Who is the foundation of Christian ethics and teachings? That would be Jesus of Nazareth. Right. Now, I'm 
not as familiar as I'd like to be with the gospel accounts, but in my last reading of them, I don't recall Jesus commanding violence. I don't recall Jesus enacting violence. I don't call Jesus the kind of person who would be violent or would take slaves or captives in war. In fact, the only incident we find in the Gospels where a violent act was committed by one of the disciples, Jesus immediately stopped it and said, Peter, put away your sword, or do you not think I could at once ask my Heavenly Father, and he would give me 12 legions of angels? And of course, insincere atheists like Sam Harris would take um, parables out of context and say, well, Jesus commanded those enemies of his to be slain before his feet. So you see, Christians are violent too. Well, all uh, credit and that there is none due to that philosopher. He doesn't know what he's talking about. When you tell an illustrative story about a king, you aren't yourself commanding those things. And also note, we have the historical setting of the original followers of Jesus who heard that story and didn't follow it the way he strawmans it. So note those things. A radical Christian is someone who acts like Jesus, which is something we should all try to be. Yeah, and you know, he, he you know, again, uh, Mac, you raise a, a very uh, interesting issue because uh, there's a big dust up uh, these days about uh, Christian nationalism. <laughs> Uh, Whatever that means. And uh, essentially, uh, the way it's defined is that, uh, you know, I think people have been spending too much time on the Hulu platform, uh, you know, uh, watching A Handmaid's Tale, uh, which is a fictional account of a theocracy coming to the United States called Gilead, where women are oppressed and and so on, and it's all these fundamentals that have done these sort of things. Yeah, they act like Muslims, but do it in the name of Christians. Yeah, so, you know, when people talk about Christian nationalism, uh, essentially what it boils down to, and this is my analysis, yours and $3.50 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks, is this. There are those that will oppose the idea of Christian nationalism, because they say that Christians' intention is to take over the government and institute a form of government like the Ayatollahs in Iran, but with a different book. You know, if there was ever a, uh, a straw man argument. Now, granted, you may run into some loonies out there that would uh, have this kind of mentality. Uh, some people that would subscribe to what's called dominion theology, uh, that, uh, you know, it's our job to win the world for Christ, and then once we've won the world for Christ and have taken over all of its institutions and cleaned it up, then Jesus will come back and we can present the world to him. Well, the, the, the amount of scripture twisting and slicing, dicing, and making coleslaw out of uh, direct statements uh, that we find in the Bible that you've got to go through to adhere to that point of view. I mean, we don't have time to even cover it here on the program. If you'd like to explore that more in depth, we certainly can. But there are some extremists in the Dominion theology camp, and it's kind of gotten some traction in uh, some Pentecostal circles uh, in what's called the Seven Mountain Movement. The new apostolic uh, reformation NAR, yeah. uh, tends to get into all of that, and it says that we as Christians are called by God to take over the seven mountains, that is the seven ways that authority is, is being uh, exercised in this world and bring the world back to Jesus. Well, you know, Mac, if we were to do a population survey on how many people are involved, the new apostolic uh, reformation, uh, I don't think the results would be very impressive. There certainly are a, a very small, tiny minority 
uh, among even Bible-believing Christians. Uh, Dominion theology, uh, it was big prior to World War One, and then after World War One, it took a real major hit. After World War Two, the idea that every day in every way Christians are going to make this world better and better uh, kind of didn't pass the uh, sight and smell test. And so, you know, those... co-opted by atheists, believe it or not. Secular humanism believes that now. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the, the, the bottom line in it all is this, uh, the idea of Christian nationalism. Uh, on the one side, they're going to say, are you a Christian nationalist? Well, I'll say, okay, define your terms. What do you mean by that? That's the first thing you've got to do, because right now it's kind of being ginned up as a pejorative, uh, a, an insult, a way to attack, a way of, if you'll use the term, othering Christians from mainstream society and saying, these are radicals out there, they are anti-democracy, and you've got to be very careful of them. Uh, you know, so if someone brings up the idea, well, are you a Christian nationalist? Just say, well, c- could you first tell me what that means to you? And if they say, well, you want to take over the country and uh, bring in righteousness through imposing all your commands on society. Well, you know, my answer to that is if what you mean by that is uh, that the United States would be a lot better off if we were more of a Christian society, I'll be happy to agree with you on that. How are we to Christianize our society? One heart at a time. You know, the Bible never paints the movement, if you will, of Christianity as something that is political or military, it is always, always, always presented as sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, leading people into a saving knowledge of him, and allowing the Lord to change this world because we're changing people's hearts one life at a time. That's why I do what I do. You know, early on uh, as a young man, I was really encouraged by some of my professors, as well as my own uh, family, to go into politics. Well, why didn't I go into politics? Well, because in the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian writer, you've changed nothing till you've changed the hearts of men. The most important thing that we can do to change society is to change people's hearts. And it can't be changed until ours do first. Yeah. We're not Christian nationalists, we're Christian individualists. Yeah, so the, the bottom line is this. Christianity, like a good infection, should be caught rather than taught, in a sense. It certainly shouldn't be imposed. Uh, if you got the real deal and people are around us and they begin to see the changes that God is making within our lives, they catch us in the act of uh, loving one another as the Lord called us to love, uh, walking in his truth, living a different kind of a life, having a different moral uh, compass than the world does. And they go, wow, you know, where do you get that peace? Where do you get that sense of direction? Where do you get that hope uh, beyond this life? Well, then we share and one life at a time, we change the world. That is uh, what the message of Christianity is all about. Would I love it if uh, everybody was a Christian? Well, kind of like the Apostle Paul, when he was uh, brought before a couple of Roman prelates, they said, uh, you know, uh, with so, so little persuasion, you would make me a Christian. And he goes, whether it's a little or a lot, uh, I would wish that you were as I am, except without the chains. So uh, would, would I love for everybody in the United States to be a born-again Christian? Yeah. 
just like every atheist would like everyone to be an atheist, just like every Muslim would want everyone to be a Muslim, just like everyone who has a belief would like it if everyone had their belief. If everybody drove the same way I did in the streets of Tucson, we'd be getting somewhere. But here's but, the problem yeah. and the point. When someone levels this accusation towards you and saying, well, you just want to legislate your morality. A great book was written, Mac, uh, addressing this very issue by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek called legislating morality, where Norman Geisler as a philosopher and Frank Turek as, again, also studying well in that field. An apologist, yeah. yeah, He engages with atheists regularly. They basically tackle the faulty assumptions behind that claim as if only Christians have the uh, wherewithal to have to answer for it. The reality is that all laws are legislated morality. The question is, whose morality? So if you hear someone level that slogan at you and you can judge that this conversation will last more than two seconds without changing, then this is the best way to handle it. First, when, as you noted, better question than give an answer. Someone says, well, you just want to legislate your morality. All you have to do is ask, well, what's a law? And if they can give you a straight answer, then you say, would that be legislating a morality you agree with? or that I agree with, or that maybe both of us could agree with. And then it says, well, sometimes it would, sometimes it wouldn't. But here's the point. If you have a problem with people legislating their morality, you're against democracy, because the whole point of passing laws is to establish some type of morality that reflects the majority. Your problem isn't, and you don't necessarily have to say this, but just understand that's the assumption, the lunatic who came up with this slogan was thinking, your problem isn't (laughs) that you don't want people legislating morals on people who don't share those morals. The problem is you don't want anyone's views being reflected in positions of power apart from your own, which sounds like tyranny to me. So make sure that you, A, don't buy into that, B, you're not intimidated by it, and C, you don't buckle under it. Again, Legislating Morality by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. I would highly recommend them. Uh, Question from Sam, who wanted to know what happened to Old Testament Jews who broke the law and then were put to death. Are they in heaven, for example, if they violate the dietary laws or the Ten Commandments and were judged by them? Uh, The interesting parallel, I think, that best answers this question, Sam, we aren't told. But when it comes to what saves somebody as opposed to what condemns somebody, in the Old Testament, it's literally the same means of salvation as far as your relationship with God as the new, but with a different time stamp. They look forward to Messiah redeeming them from their sins. It didn't mean they never sinned. Likewise, they looked back, like we do, to Messiah to forgive their sins, but it didn't mean that we're free from sin. So notice this common feature. If in the Old Covenant people were condemned for what they knew and the penalties therein, it would be the same as if today someone as a Christian, someone who was saved but still fell into an area of sin, received the death penalty or even, say, incarceration ended up dying in prison. Right. They experienced consequences legally for something they knew would warrant those consequences, but all that tells you is where where the body went, not where right. the soul went. Right. So if someone was condemned according to the law, I would note it the same way someone would be condemned according to any law. What makes them go to heaven or hell isn't that they lived lives that never resulted in judgment legally. David deserved, uh, did something that legally deserved death, but God had mercy on him, and instead it spread to his whole family, which 
one would argue is worse. But the point being made is this as well. We asked what what's up. I, I was just going to say, or there's also the possibility that you could be condemned under the law, but we're innocent. Yeah. Think about uh, Naboth, the fellow who owned the vineyard that uh, Ahab uh, set his mind on. His wife Jezebel said, quit whining about it. I'll fix this. And so according to the law of Moses, with two or three paid off witnesses, uh, they uh, convicted Naboth of uh, crime and uh, executed him. So that didn't mean that Naboth was uh, evil. All right. And yeah, just uh, understand that, Sam, when we're being condemned under the law, that's a legislative body penalty. What makes your heart, your soul right before God is your hope and Messiah. And the old covenant people could do that and still be condemned. But the point being made is just that. Remember how you're saved, not how you're preserved. We'll finish with this uh, statement from Hunter, who kind of proves my point. Uh, he says he's a deist, and I think it's dangerous because there are Islam that think like you'd, that want to change the world one heart at a time. So we need to be a deist nation. Why they are, oh boy, here's a fun uh, sloganeering here. They are a Calvary version of Islam. So who's to say you are right? Uh, Hunter, you know, I'll hand this off to you because my sarcasm meter is going off the charts okay. right now. What's, uh, what okay, what is the difference between Islam and Christianity? Uh, in Islam, uh, once Islam is instituted, uh, you have a couple of options. You can convert to Islam, or you can become a second-class citizen, uh, if you're lucky, uh, pay up to 90% of your income in taxes. Uh, if they are not in the mood to do that, you can be executed according to blasphemy laws. There is no example in Christianity of any of these sort of things. So uh, your argument that uh, Calvary and Islam are the same because we're not deists. Now let's define our term on this. What a deist means is that God is not involved in the lives of people. He merely wound up the universe and is allowing it to run off. There's no such thing as divine intervention. There is no such thing as miracles and so on. Well, you're certainly in a free country uh, welcome to have that opinion, Hunter, but may I challenge you to take a look at the life and teaching of Jesus. Take a look at his ministry. Because in Jesus, Jesus made this radical statement. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, it's one thing to make that statement. It's another thing to back it up. Uh, among other things that Jesus did to back up his statement that he was God in human flesh was, as we mentioned earlier, control over nature, the ability to forgive sins, to even raise the dead. The ultimate proof positive that Jesus is who he claimed to be was his physical death on a cruel Roman cross, not because of any sin he had ever committed, but because he was bearing the sins of the world, and then rising from the dead in a moment of history that can be verified to the satisfaction of any fair inquirer. And I hope you're a fair inquirer, Sam, because you can get a hold of a book uh, called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell, or you can get a hold of the book that I wrote called Reasonable Doubts. Uh, both of them are available on Amazon.com. And take a look at the facts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, then that separates him from any other religious ruler or system that you ever want to name. And that includes Islam, that includes Buddhism, that includes uh, any other religion. Uh, that is under the sun. So very important for you to understand that. Do your homework. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. 
You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.